So that's what I found that has, has kind of taken one of the pain points off it for me. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other pain point was, you know, when, when you look at, um, uh, when you look at the, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, what were the two studies that were done that looked at atropine? The lamp study. and The lamp was the most recent, right? Then there was yeah. one and two. One by two. Yeah, two. It was at Adam two. Yeah. And then what was the most recent there? So sorry, I, I usually can spout these right off the top of my head and now I'm drawing a complete blank. So we have lamp one, lamp two, or no, Adam one, Adam two. They said that. Yeah. So, yes. so Adam one and Adam two. And so then if you're following this pretty closely, you'd, you'd walk away from Adam one and say, oh, well, we're going to use maybe um, half a percent or maybe point point zero two five or 0.25% or maybe 0.1%. And then you go to Adam two and you're like, no, we can use 0.01%, right? And then you go to LAMP and then, and then there's some this, okay, could, could it be 0.025% as efficacious as 0.05%? Oh, now the two-year LAMP data comes out and says, mm-hmm. yeah, 0.05% is probably the best place to start, in my opinion, based yeah. on refractive ef- efficacy and side effect profile. So, but that's challenging for a lot of docs. If you're not really watching that closely, that's a span of what? I, I, I covered studies for three or four years. Mm-hmm. But that's that's kind of hard to keep up with that. So is that part of the the challenge you think? Well, it, it's and if it is, because, how do you simplify yeah. it for docs? Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's an interesting concept because doctors are providing 0.01 percent atropine, and then I heard many doctors say, "Oh my gosh, I'm doing the wrong thing," because um, now they're saying 0.05 percent atropine. People aren't doing the right thing. You're providing the care that's appropriate at that time, and science evolves. Um, we're seeing that with COVID on a daily can, basis. Can you say that again? Can you say that again, Jeff? Yeah, science evolves. It's science. Um, okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Sometimes, sometimes people like to pretend like science. I don't, I don't know. I hear it all the time. Like it's science. Like yeah, science, and it's always changing. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. That's we, a total we find tangent. Information on a you know monthly basis, and so you're not providing wrong information to your patients. It's that the information changes and. As long as you keep up and do the best that you possibly can, you may change your protocols with time. And I, I would say right now, I completely agree that um, we should start our patients with 0.05% atropine because it provides better myopia control without additional side effects. But to me, most importantly, it's uh, there's greater equality between the myopia progress, the slowing of myopia progression, and the slowing of eye growth. So they're more they're more on a one to one ratio, like you would expect, as opposed to twice the the myopia control is twice as good as the eye growth control Mm, yeah 0.01 percent um so you know it it really truly um science changes and we have new recommendations all the time and and you just have to do your best to keep up with the information go to you know that's why you that's why we have continuing education requirements is because information evolves and we learn more all the time so just keep up and continue to go to myopia control talks and see what's the latest, greatest information out there. Well, I think that's the fun part about this in particular. And and it kind of circles back around to the first thing that you said was this topic in particular is, is almost constantly evolving, which is so cool Mm -hmm. because if you're paying attention to it, there's probably nothing else in eye care right now that, you know, an optometric eye care that's not surgical or injectable where, you know, you can, you can just pay attention to the, to the data that's coming out. And three or four months later, it's like, oh, wow, this is, that's cool. I can do this now instead. And, and, and by the way, you know, so 
um, we were using same thing. We, we went through this evolution in our practice where we're using 0.01% for probably a year, 0.025% as our initial go-to. And then now it's, and for me, it's 0.05%. And I, I, um, our associate, you know, I, I was talking to her about this and she's like, yeah, I think I might, I might, but I got to look at the evidence. I don't trust you yet, Chris. And that's okay. <laughs> it's fine. She shouldn't. And, um, and so the point is that, um, that it's okay because I don't feel like I've done those patients that are on 0.01% of this service. In fact, if they don't have any changes that I'm, that I'm seeing, I'm keeping them on it. Like there's no reason to, to increase it. Right. I prove that, that we're, we're stable. So we're fine. Right. Yeah. But, um, but that leads me to the next kind of question that was on my mind that I wanted to pick your brain about a bit is, is axial length required in order to be a good myopia manager? Manager. No, it is no. not. You do. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Jeff Walleen about myopia management. Uh, I picked his brains about his thoughts on axial length and atropine and peripheral defocus and how it all works. Um, I love myopia management. It's become a real passion of mine and, and I learned a ton from, from Jeff and uh, I, I enjoyed the conversation. I think there's a lot to be learned and a lot that we still don't know, but, but uh, we will have the answers to and, and so that's really exciting. So please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review and share it with your friends and support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, CooperVision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight One Day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by CooperVision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8 to 12 years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single vision one day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of taking us back to that encounter that I had with you, um, you know, 12 or 13 years ago, uh, in contact lens clinic when Dr. Bill had you come in and talk to us. That's a long time in my mind. That's a long time. And I think from what you were probably doing at that time, the research now is starting to kind of catch up with your thoughts and theories. And um, so, so kind of give me a sense of how does myopia management research take place? And what are the types of things that you've got to do in order to get to the point of saying, this is what we know based on the evidence? Yeah, um, I think that's a really important question for both practitioners and research scientists, to be perfectly honest. Um, the way we sort of learn about where the where things are headed is by consuming the literature. Um, so scientific publications, um, but also by continu through continuing education talks, which is where you hear about a lot of the literature. Um, maybe participating in uh, myopia management classes, which there are more and more of all the time now. I think there's, um, and there are also websites that are dedicated to myopia management that eye care practitioners can take a look at. And all of those things really are excellent resources for people to sort of follow, look at, um, and try to learn more about what they do. Um, I've, I've been really lucky in that I've been able to travel the world talking to people about myopia control. Um, 
when I do, I learn more than I probably teach. And um, it's from that. It's just simply from conversations that I learn more than probably anything. So just creating dialogue with people who know that the area can really be beneficial. So then the when you think about um, myopia management, one of the things I think is daunting for just the kind of rank and file clinician is there's, I think there's this, there's a couple hurdles. First is, do I think it's important enough to undertake uh, first? And then the second is, can I actually undertake it in my practice uh, to help patients benefit it? And then third is, okay, if I, if I believe in it enough to, to incorporate it into my practice or send patients to other people, we could talk about all those things. Um, then what, how do I actually work it in? Like, how do I actually mm -hmm. generate revenue and make it work and work so that we're not losing money on the proposition? So what is, when you think about what, what is most convincing to you as a clinician about the why behind myopia management, what, what would you say that is? Uh, I'd say there are lots of reasons to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, let's talk about them. Yeah. One of the main reason is um, it's such an, a quickly evolving area of scientific discovery right now. There are every year, there are multitudes of randomized clinical trials, which are the gold standards for um, clinical care, um, showing that the benefits of myopia control. And um, I think we're at the place in terms of the body of knowledge that we have to educate all of our young myopic patients about myopic control. It's not something that we choose to do on one patient here and one patient there. I really think it's, and I hesitate to say this, but I think it's sort of become the standard of care and what really ought to be offered or what, what patients ought to be educated about every single time for young myopic patients. Um, and the other reasons that it's important are, you know, patient oriented, obviously. Um, I'd say the big one that people talk about isn't one that's tangible to the patient right away. Um, and that is basically maintaining good vision throughout a lifetime. So we know that the risk of sight threatening complications increases with every diopter increase in myopia. So if we can keep somebody from becoming one diopter less myopic than they would have normally, we actually can decrease their chances of sight-threatening complications by 40%. That was found by Mark Bullimore. And, and that's, that's specifically with, with myopic maculopathy, specifically, exactly not right. the retinal detachments or glaucoma or cataracts. It's specifically myopic maculopathy. That's exactly right. And so you can add, there are you know, other similar numbers that you can sort of add on to that for other complications that are possible with or with myopia. Um, and so you can see the benefits. They, these aren't benefits, though, that people experience until they are much, much older, because those are things that we typically um, uh, uh, experience till late into adulthood. But for younger people, the benefits that they'll get is just freedom from the absolute necessity of glasses, at least early in the stages of myopia. So you can go without glasses for times. Um, one of the things that people universally talk about is being able to wake up and see the clock. Um, hmm. It's like leaves on the trees. I don't know why those two things are really important for people, but they do seem to be far more important than we um, give, give them credit for, I think. Um, so if we can keep them lower myopes, that's a benefit. 
lower myopes have more treatment options and cheaper treatment options in terms of contact lenses, in terms of spectacles, um, anything that they use to manage their, or treat their myopia along the way. And then of course, if they ultimately want to become refractive surgery candidates, they're much better refractive surgery candidates if they're lower myopes. The, the results are much more predictable, um, far fewer side effects. So you know, I think there's just a multitude of things that aren't necessarily tangible to those young children right away, but ultimately can save vision. Yeah. You know, the, so I want to dig a little bit into the, cause, cause I, my sense is, is if I just kind of watch the, you know, optometric community and, and certainly the ophthalmic community in general, um, there's, there's this kind of still like, okay, well, what is the real impact of like, how many people do I see that have myopic maculopathy? And, and so, you know, then you kind of even lean into this idea of which most people don't think about, but, but numbers needed to treat. So how many patients are we going to um, have to intervene with to slow down a diopter or two diopters or three diopters in order for us to prevent one case of myopic maculopathy? So first, have you, have you ran those numbers? I find them really hard to find. Like I haven't, when, when I see Mark Bullimore's and I, I believe Mark, I'm not, that's a, a data point that I use. Yeah. But when I see Mark Bullimore's uh, and I should have him on the podcast too. If you, if you can put me in contact with Mark, I would love to have him on as well. Sure. But, um, but to try to dig through, okay, so that 40%, if I can prevent a patient that would have been a minus six and keep them at minus five, they're at a 40% reduction uh, in myopic maculopathy likelihood. But what would have been their original risk? Like if we could, if they were six, what's their new risk at five? I'm trying to figure out like what's their absolute risk reduction? What's our number needed to treat? Because I think now that most people aren't probably thinking like that, but, but the reality is, is it, it does help us make an even more compelling story if that's, if that's a risk of, you know, 50% at a minus six and we cut that down to, you know, by 40% down to, you know, 30, 30 some odd percent, right? 35, we'll just say 35. Well, now that's a significant risk reduction. We don't have mm -hmm. to treat many people to prevent one from developing myopic maculopathy. Yeah. So anyway, I'm trying to build that story in my mind so that I can articulate better. And I can't find the numbers very well. Have you looked into that? Um, I haven't looked into that personally, but I do know that Pauline Cho has a publication out related specifically to orthokeratology and the numbers needed to treat. And I think that's a meaningful publication. I can't remember what the numbers are. Okay. The other um, publication that's come out recently is taking a look at the risks versus benefits um, for of myopia control. Um, Kate Gifford published that, and I can't yes. remember where that's published, but it, it's it's a nice publication. And then Mark Bullimore's also takes a look at the risks versus benefits of myopia control, and I think those are all th four of those. Three of those are really good publications to take a look at. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. I, I agree with you. And, and, and um, I'm not coming at it from a skeptic standpoint, but I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is say, okay, if somebody were going to say myopia management is just not that important because there's so few people, at least in the United States, that are going to develop. I'm trying to say, okay, how could I preemptively know how to convince that person by showing them even firmer data, data points. And that's the, the reason I asked that question. Yeah. The, um, but the, the other thing that's interesting in that is that um, is this idea of right now we've looked at myopia management as sort of this niche within a practice. What's been your experience training students and um, and in in terms of as you talk to them as they get out of school, 
are they all incorporating it? They're like, yeah, Dr. Walleen, he is awesome. And I cannot not do this for my patients. Or where are the barriers where they, where they, where you think they're kind of uh, encountering to incorporate that into their practice when you talk to them or are there barriers? Yeah. As I can say, I don't think they're really barriers to them incorporating it in practice, except, you know, except for life gets in the way and, and it, it does take some time in order to be able to truly understand all, every, all the options that are available to people for myopia management. Um, so, but once you do that, really, it is relatively routine eye care that you conduct with your patients. And so it's relatively easy to incorporate into practice and honestly, probably should be based on the knowledge that we have today. Um, interesting question, interesting the way you ask the question, you know, I think most students coming out of optometry school are now really interested in ocular disease in the medical care of the optometric patient far more than they are in the refractive care. I think once they get into practice and they see sort of what, what really benefits the most patients and honestly what affects their bottom line in terms of um, you know, income, then they start to get, become even more interested in myopia control. Um, so really it's what I think people are seeing myopia control as today is they've got their practice working. You've got to look for ways to sort of make your practice unique. You've got to look at ways that you can build your practice. And myopia management is absolutely one of those new ways that can make you unique in your area, can build your practice, can bring new patients into your practice. I don't know if you saw that. I, I agree with you. I think, um, I think that's, that there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I think that, um, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but CVS now has, has kind of partnered with this virtual quick exam that they do online to replenish or to refill um, spectacle and contact lens prescriptions. I took it the other day. It is, uh, it is laughable how, how, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. But, it, you know, but when I look at that, I think, okay, I took it the other day right before I started seeing patients because I got an email about it. And I thought, you know, then, then the deep down, like Chris Wolf political guy comes out of me and I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to work on this and we're going to shut this down. It's like, it's just whack-a-mole. But, and then I'm like, look, I got a full busy day full of patients with ocular disease and myopia management and scleral lenses. And it's like, they can't touch what we're doing. Uh, if you're really practicing primary care optometry, these things, all they do, the real danger is they serve to, to give patients a thought that they're getting the same thing. But if they actually, obviously, obviously I, if patients come into your practice, they know they're not getting the same thing. But the reality is, is that it's just confusing to the public. That's why it's wrong. But the, um, but I, I think like how much energy am I going to really expend on this, you know, this one new piece of, of quote unquote technology, which is essentially a, a visual acuity chart. Mm -hmm. um, and then you put in whatever prescription. In fact, what was interesting about it is I just tried to put in um, natural view. Okay. Um, and, uh, and it, it, I couldn't even get past that point. Like once I put in, they said, what's your current prescription? Right. And it, I put in natural. Nope. I they, they couldn't take care of it. I put in, you know, I put in, um, Hydrosoft. Nope. Couldn't take care of it. You know, I tried like lenses from different manufacturers that were kind of unique, oh. but still rel readily available. They couldn't, yeah. they couldn't do anything with it. And so then I, I was just like, okay, well, what can you do something with? So then they say, other brands you click other brands and then it gives you about six or 12, I guess it's like 12 different brands that you could use. I guess the point about all of that is that, um, that 
it, it just it spoke to me as like, I don't have the, I don't have the bandwidth to do this. I don't have, uh, you know, if you're practicing what we're trained to do, these little things that sprout up here and there are distractions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so with myopia management, I, I wonder if we don't just look at myopia management as a continuum of managing ocular disease, if we really don't think about it like that, then it is just sort of a niche in our practice that we're just going to try to do to add to grow the practice. But if you come out of school and you're like, look, I want to manage disease, and this is just another disease state I'm managing, then it's, it's easy. Oh, thank you for saying that. I have been trying to get people to understand because probably eight, 10 years ago, I started asking optometrists during continuing education meetings, how many of you think that myopia is a disease? And literally 10% of optometrists would raise their hand. Everybody else thought of that as refractive error or as an adaptation or something else. Um, And it, you know, it precisely meets the definition of a disease. If you look in the dictionary and it truly is a disease, it's just that it's easy to manage the side effects of it. And that's mm-hmm. all we've ever done. But I completely agree that um, one of the benefits of myopia management is it treats myopia like the disease that it really is. And specific types of the management even get it more so in terms of atropine you yeah. know, is, is a way that we prescribe. We give a prescription. They take it to a pharmacist. The pharmacist delivers it to them. So it truly is sort of that medical model of of where probably optometry is heading ultimately. Yeah. And I think, so I think that kind of leads us to this other point. And, and I wouldn't say, I'm sure I'm not revolutionary in thinking like this. I'm sure I picked up the idea from somebody else, but you know, the way I've been really looking at and incorporating most myopia management protocols into our practice is to treat them that way. We are really good as a practice uh, of understanding a managed vision care plan and also understanding a medical disease and how to bill for each of those things. But what, what was really challenging for me was when I tried to incorporate myopia management in a practice with just a big global fee for mm-hmm. everything, global fees for everything, um, then what would wind up happening is that I was scaring off, I was making it completely unaccessible or inaccessible to a huge number of patients because of, of my attempt to try to cover all of my services and follow-ups under one big fee. And it wasn't natural for our practice. I mean, there's a save for a few, like, you know, some meibomian gland treatments that we do, some, um, you know, orthokeratology we still will use under a global fee because there's this sort of prescribed follow-up schedule where I may need to modify and manipulate and those sorts of things. But with atropine, certainly, and even with, with um, soft dual focus or, or multifocus lens, multifocal lenses, um, you know, what, what is required of me? So, so then I think, okay, well, what is the technical skill that I, I am, that I need in order to fit that patient in a myopia management lens? And then if they're a quick progressor or, or to prescribe that atropine, then I can see them back. Like if I want to see them back at in three months or six months or four months, that, that can become a fee for service. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then if a, if a patient doesn't show up because just like a glaucoma patient, they might not show up, then, you know, they, they didn't care enough about it. Right. Or, or they didn't care enough about it at that time, but they'll be back at some other point in time. Right. So I, I think when I've started thinking about it like that and saying, what's the minimal amount of global fee that I need to do to cover a professional service that I'm providing. And then 
kind of fit it in with the rest of our model, that has actually made it so much more accessible to way more patients in our practice. And I'll tell you, if you run the numbers, the revenue that we generate from that is, is basically the same as if I would have just lumped it all together and stuck it in a global fee. I, I think that's fantastic to hear. Um, to be perfectly honest, you know, as a, as a research scientist, I give away all my services for free, which I know kills people in practice, and I completely understand that. So the economic aspects of it, I don't understand. But the economic aspect of myopia management that I do understand is that um, we are creating a system that makes it manageable only for those economically advantaged. So I'm glad that you see the fact that, you know, by global pricing, one unique price that covers everything, you make, make it less um, uh, usable by some people who are economically disadvantaged. And what I hope that all people in myob management ultimately do, because it's not something that's covered by um, in health insurances in any way, shape or form, um, is that A, we start to advocate for health insurances to cover this, but B, that we provide some sort of service to those who are economically disadvantaged. You know, for every 10 patients that, that we put in the service, we'll provide one free service or something for, for particular patients. So, you know, ask everybody to think of that so that this can become, uh, you know, an option for everybody, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I think, I think um, the, yeah, I, I always have had a problem with if, if this is so important. I, and I also think that, that you can generate revenue in your practice this way. I, I think it, it's not like you're giving your services away. I'm, I'm probably one of the biggest advocates of not giving our services away uh, that, I, that I know. But, um, but I also don't want to have this, this, uh, this barrier for patients. Right. Um, or at least a perceived barrier. And, and the reality is, is that if we are, if this is a disease and this disease does have other sequela that, I mean, think about what we've started doing in our practices for the last year or so. And actually Cheryl Chapman turned me on to this. I don't know if you know Cheryl, but um, uh, she um, had been documenting any, any um, scleral crescent from a patient with myopia, any, you know, anything at all, you know, tigroid fundus, any of that kind of stuff that she was seeing that we wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, this is just, you know, a scleral crescent, right? But like any of those types of things in her practice, she was documenting them so that she could, one, ma mainly track them, right? Mainly track them. But actually what was really interesting to me is if we are managing a disease by which we're trying to slow axial elongation and slow some of the other risk factors long-term, right? If you have myopic degeneration, right? At any point in, in the retina, which a scleral crescent clearly would be some, some myopic change, um, then all of a sudden, now we are managing a medical disease, right? We're managing a medical disease that, you know, if there is indication to do so, there's probably indication for somebody to pay for that if a patient has, um, has the, you know, the means with insurance or whatever else. So just was interesting to me. And, and now that we track that, you know, we can actually search in our EHR and see how many patients do we actually have that have this retinal finding, right? And, yeah. and then it becomes, it becomes a, a bigger number than you actually know. When you pay attention to it, how many myopes, even low myopes, have those changes? Yeah. Well, and there are publications out there that have taken a look at optic nerve head topography, and you can very accurately predict somebody's refractive error from optic nerve head topography. Hmm. Um, so, you know, 
that's part of the changes that are coming in the future. Um, and probably, you know, if you look at it from sort of the reverse direction, it may help you predict who's going to progress. It may help you predict other things as well. And I think people are looking into that at this time. Yeah. And so then I want to talk a little bit about atropine because, you know, um, you know, Tom Quinn, cause he's, mm-hmm. he's, uh, he's in Ohio, but, um, the, uh, you know, his perception when he talks to a lot of docs in his community, um, his perception is that atropine is actually like the go-to treatment option for, for docs in his community. And I actually think that atropine is, like you said, is a very easy, you treat it like any other, anything else you'd treat. It's a very easy thing to incorporate. But when I talk to other docs across the country, I don't think that's necessarily the case. What do you think? What's your perception of is atropine yeah. kind of on the low or the starting point for myopia management, or does it tend to be on the on the uh, kind of I've already done soft uh, lenses, I've already done ortho K, this is another uh, option that we have? Um, I would say it varies dramatically, but um, in ophthalmology, it is the form of myopia management um, and really the only form. In optometry, I think it it ranges dramatically, but I think it is, it is certainly the area to me where there's the most interest um, hmm. in terms of how people are actually practicing. I don't know that as well. Um, I know that it is, there is a bigger hurdle to overcome um, because you have to work obviously with a compounding pharmacist. It's not commercially available. Um, whether you have a compounding pharmacist in your area, whether that compounding pharmacist will actually provide low concentration atropine and the price point of the low concentration atropine varies dramatically based on almost nothing. And so I think there, it, I, I would say that um, some people, it is their absolute primary go-to method, um, despite the fact that it provides good myopia control, but not real good slowing of eye growth, which I think is interesting. Um, what I Why do you think people, that is? Why, I don't so know. That, I, yeah, no, no, no rationale for it. None whatsoever. I don't know how you would slow the growth of the eye or how you would slow myopia progression without slowing the growth of the right. eye. Um, you well, know, it, could have a, it could have a change in the topography, yeah. Are you seeing yeah. that at all? Um, not that I know of, but I huh. don't know that people have done really in-depth studies. Uh, Jenny Huang at Ohio State is actually looking at um, combination therapy, so um, soft multifocal contact lenses along with atropine, and she's looking at you know, the thickness of the lens, the lens refractive index, the curvatures of the lens, she's looking at corneal curvature. And so she'll have a better idea of how we're slowing eye growth. But that, that is the only study that's really looking at all the ocular parameters at any one hmm. time and related to low concentration atropine. So I think it'll be a very meaningful study when it actually is published. Do you think part of the the uptake with atropine is is the fact that there's so many different concentrations where people don't really know where to start, don't really know how to titrate up or titrate down? Um, you think there's some of that? I mean, I think I, I definitely think that the compounding pharmacy issue is a big one, and and for me, I'm always I'm, I'm it's a challenge because I'm all about supporting local you know local businesses, but at the same time, the local businesses that have, I, I've encountered in Omaha. Most of them don't want, I mean, when you're starting to compound stuff, it's expensive. And, um, and so like we've identified, Cheryl has identified, there's one in Hastings, I think, but that's, that's two hours away from Omaha. So, mm-hmm. um, so then when you're starting to go, okay, well, I'm going two hours away. What I've found is two online OSRX and, and Imprimis, 
that I use, that's where that's almost exclusively who I use now. And so what it really comes down to for me is how is it, what's the easiest thing for me and, and for my patient is if there's not a local place that's, that they can take their prescription and go to, then through the mail is what they're going to have to do in Hastings. So, um, so then I guess that's, and really, that's the they barrier. Don't take their prescription to the compounding pharmacist and get it filled there anyway. They, you know, generally I'm guessing you call and they get yes. sent to their house regardless. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I've found that has, has kind of taken one of the pain points off it for me. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other pain point was, you know, when, when you look at, um, uh, when you look at the, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, what were the two studies that were done that looked at atropine? The lamp study and, and the lamp was the most recent, right? Then there was yeah. one and two. One by two, yeah, two. It was Adam two. Yeah, and then what was the most recent? There, so sorry, I, I usually can spout these right off the top of my head, and now I'm drawing a complete blank. So we have lamp one, lamp two, or no, Adam one, Adam two. You said that, yeah. So, yes. so Adam one and Adam two, and so then if you're following this pretty closely, you you walk away from Adam one and say, oh well, we're going to use maybe um, half a percent or maybe point point zero. Uh, 0.25% or maybe 0.1%. And then you go to Adam 2 and you're like, no, we can use 0.01%, right? And then you go to LAMP and then then there's some this, okay, could could it be 0.025% as efficacious as 0.05%? Oh, now the two-year LAMP data comes out and says, Mm -hmm. yep, 0.05% is probably the best place to start, in my opinion, based on refractive efficacy and side effect profile. So, but that's challenging for a lot of docs. If you're not really watching that closely, that's a span of what I, I, I covered studies for three or four years, mm-hmm. but that's, that's kind of hard to keep up with that. So is that part of the, the challenge you think? Well, it, it's and if it because, is, how do you simplify yeah. it for docs? Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's an interesting concept because doctors are providing 0.01% atropine and then I heard many doctors say, oh my gosh, I'm doing the wrong thing because um, now they're saying 0.05% atropine. People aren't doing the right thing. You're providing the care that's appropriate at that time and science evolves. Um, we're seeing that with COVID on a daily can, basis. Can you say that again? Can you say that again, Jeff? Yeah, science evolves. It's science, um, okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Sometimes, sometimes people like to pretend like science, I don't, I don't know, I hear it all the time. Like It's science, like, yeah, science, and it's always changing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a total tangent. Information on a you know monthly basis, and so you're not providing wrong information to your patients. It's that the information changes, and as long as you keep up and do the best that you possibly can, you may change your protocols with time. And I I would say right now I completely agree that um, we should start our patients with 0.05 percent atropine because it provides better myopia control without additional side effects. But to me, most importantly it's uh, there's greater equality between the myopia progress the slowing of myopia progression and the slowing of eye growth so they're more they're more on a one-to-one ratio like you would expect as opposed to twice the the myopia control is twice as good as the eye growth control hmm. yeah 0.01 percent um so you know it, it really truly um, science changes and we have new recommendations all the time and, and you just have to do your best to keep up with the information. Go to, you know, that's why you, that's why we have continuing education requirements is because information evolves and we learn more all the time. So just keep up and you know, continue to go to myopia control talks and see what's the latest, greatest information out there. Well, I think that's the fun part about this in particular. And we, it kind of circles back around to the first thing that you said was, 
this topic in particular is is almost constantly evolving, which is so cool mm-hmm. because if you're paying attention to it, there's probably nothing else in eye care right now that, you know, an optometric eye care that's not surgical or injectable where, you know, you can, you can just pay attention to the, to the data that's coming out. And three or four months later, it's like, oh, wow, this is, that's cool. I can do this now instead. And, and, and by the way, you know, so um, we were using same thing. We, we went through this evolution in our practice where we're using 0.01% for probably a year. 0.025% as our initial go-to. And then now it's, and for me, it's 0.05%. And I, I, um, our associate, you know, I, I was talking to her about this and she's like, yeah, I think I might, I might, but I got to look at the evidence. I don't trust you yet, Chris. And that's okay. <laughs> it's fine. She shouldn't. And, um, and so the point is that, um, that it's okay because I don't feel like I've done those patients that are on 0.01% of this service. In fact, if they don't have any changes that I'm, that I'm seeing, I'm keeping them on it. Like there's no reason to, to increase it. Right. I prove that, that we're, we're, we're stable. So we're fine. Right. Yeah. But, um, but that leads me to the next kind of question that, that was on my mind that I wanted to pick your brain about a bit is, is axial length required in order to be a good myopia manager manager? No, it is no. not. You do not have to measure axial length. And that's one point that I want to get across to a lot of people. And that is, if you don't have something to measure axial length, you still ought to be providing myopia control education and um, options to your patients. Um, and I'm probably, so there's obviously an extreme. So there's people who think you have to do it and there's people who think you shouldn't do it. And Oh, you know, wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry, you said shouldn't. So I've only right. heard the people that think you have to. Right. And then the people like you and I that think you don't, you can, but you don't have to. There are people that say, don't do it at all. Um, so I, I was just saying that there are, there are okay. those extremes. There's a spectrum. And yep. I'm closest to the, I'm closer to the shouldn't extreme than most people are, to be perfectly well, honest. Why do you say shouldn't? So, so that's an interesting choice of and words. It, and it's not that I am saying that you shouldn't. I'm saying I'm closer to that extreme. Okay. okay? But why? But, um, but why, why that's, that, that is an extreme. And so yeah. why, why are you closer to that extreme? I'm closer to that extreme because I don't think it's absolutely necessary. So for clinical trials, for studies, it is 100% necessary. I think we have to have that information for any studies that we do in clinic. When we're treating individual patients, I don't think that it provides necessarily enough additional information that you are required to measure it because a, it is highly correlated with refractive error most of the time. So why do two measurements that are highly correlated when you can do one that you do on patients routinely anyway? Um, second, when they aren't correlated, when one, it can't be explained by the other, how do we know exactly which one is providing the true, mm. right, correct answer? We don't. Third, that information doesn't tell you any more about the future of that patient or any more about what treatment would be the best one for that patient. Now, having said all of that, I think additional information, some people think, and, and, and I could argue that it is on occasion, it is beneficial, but it's not necessary. So I am further away from the, you know, you got to start looking for the um, next, the best thing to measure eye length out there. Um, 
than most people would be. Um, and I, I, and uh, to be honest, I'm moving more toward the, I'm seeing the benefits of it a little bit more in clinical care, but I'm still not all the way there. The, no. the most, oh no, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just, I'm, just, I'm not there as nearly as much as most people you will see giving continuing education talks and manufacturers out there. You know, I, I, um, so I, I would say I'm pretty close to where you are. Um, and, and the, the most compelling evidence that I've seen so far is this idea that we can predict based on axial length of a, of a young hyperope, or that we may be able to predict based on the axial length of a long, young hyperope, if you're starting to see axial elongation, that perhaps they're going to be more likely to, to develop to onset in refractive myopia before where maybe it's preceding the refractive change that we may see. Mm -hmm. But even then, I keep coming back to what your point is, I'm not going to, what intervention am I going to have on a, you know, plus 50 patient that has a little bit of acceleration in their axial length? Maybe, I, I guess, maybe I would start atropine. I, I mean, I, I, that would be a challenge for me to, to be compelling for me to, to think through. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly, again, being willing to completely change my mind based on evidence. Um, yeah. And so, uh, but that's kind of the, the most, you know, that or, or if it's the case that, uh, and I haven't seen data on this, I've just heard a lot of people talking about it, like in my practice, before I see a refractive change, I'll see an acceleration in axial length growth. Um, so I've heard that as well, but it's all anecdotal. Uh, so I, so for me, I'm just kind of like, I don't see a reason at this point where it has to change where I could use it. I think it could be beneficial, but it's, I, it's, it's going to be very hard for me to change my, the way I'm practicing, but I'm still completely open and open to that change. Yeah. And I would say the evidence shows that the number one predictor of whether you'll become myopic or not later in the future is cycloplegic refractive error. Plain and simple. You can add... At different um, ages. Uh, yeah, At different exactly. ages, right? Yeah. D differ the, that level of refractive error differs by age. Um, and you can add axial elongation to that. You can add corneal curvature. You can add lens parameters that add you almost no information at all. Mm. Now, having said that, also important is just axial length, but that's confounded by corneal curvature and other things as well. So by, I think the best predictor is something that we routinely measure anyway. So, so we don't really need to measure axial length. And honestly, the, the number one predictor of the amount of myopia you will experience as an adult is age of onset. That's um, yeah. the earlier the age, the more myopic you're going to be as an adult. And that, that by far pales everything else in comparison. What about, um, so I think, um, what about this uh, nuance of how, I guess, how picky do you get if you're thinking about orthokeratology? Well, let me, let me ask a different question first. When you think about cycloplegic refraction, how often are you doing that for patients as you're monitoring their progress? And how often are you seeing in general, how often would you say a, my, a normal myopia management patient, how often do you want to see them in your clinic? Do you stratify that? Do you, do you have a, a normal protocol you go to? Yeah. Um, so to be perfectly honest, I don't do a lot of clinical care. I do research. And in okay. our research studies, we see the patients, we do outcome measures of uh, eye length and refractive error every year. And in those studies, we do cycloplegic measurement of refractive error. In clinical With practice- With trypicamide or cyclopenolate? We just uh, use trypicamide for our okay. patients. 
um, two drops separated by five minutes, um, wait for 25 minutes after the second drop. But in clinical practice, I really don't think it's all that cycloplegia is even all that necessary, to be honest, because these are myopes. They're not, you know, there's no latent hyperopia that you're trying to uncover or anything like that. So once you've established their refractive error and you know that they are truly myopic and not a pseudomyope, then I think, you know, just following them non-cycloplegia is okay. If you are dilating their eyes and checking the health of their eyes, you might as well, me- you might, you might as well measure it sure. anyway. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't think it's absolutely necessary. Um, I already forgot. No, that's uh, no. Look, I, I think that's I think that's fine. I think you know one of the challenges again in all of this. I think that, um, and I'm being critical as a as a speaker, um, and I always try to watch myself when I do this is to make sure that I don't overcomplicate things or mm-hmm. dissuade the profession from taking up something that could be and should be part of our continuum of care. And in this, I'm wondering if, um, you know, if you establish that a patient is truly myopic, right, which could mean an initial refractive error or or, or an initial cycloplegic refraction or another cycloplegic refraction when you think there's accommodative issues going on, you know, because you're paying attention to the patient, as opposed to like, you got to do this every single time. I mean, that's what I, when I listen to some speakers on this, I listen to them, I'm like, are you just trying to make everybody just refer all myopia management to your specific myopia management clinic? Because nobody's going to do this because you're making it so challenging. Mm-hmm. And I don't really believe that's what they want, but I, I'm just kind of like, it, it can't be that hard. This is part of what we do. And so that's why I asked the question. The other, the other thing that I kind of get stuck on is, you know, we've been doing um, orthokeratology in my practice since before I was, my, you know, my dad was doing orthokeratology when it was first FDA approved. Uh, with specifically with Paragon with CRT. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was just a natural continuum of what I would do for the last 12 and a half years. And um, I wasn't getting finicky with, um, with optic zones. I wasn't changing, you know, all of, all of that to try to put more um, of the, re- the return zone depth of that secondary curve in the pupil. Um, and my, and I wasn't necessarily doing it primarily at first, as a uh, myopia management strategy, right? It was mostly just a strategy to, to help kids stay out of contacts during the day. Yeah. But, my, but what I noticed was that works pretty darn well. Like I can go back and say, okay, well, I was using it probably specifically as a myopia management strategy in 2012, 2011, something like that. Um, but I can go back for all those patients and they're pretty stable. Mm-hmm. So do we have to finick? Do we have to be finicky with that zone? I mean, I hear a lot of people talking about that too. And in my clinical practice, I'm watching these kids and they're just, they're not moving. What I are know, your thoughts? I, I think the science is evolving and we'll find out more about that uh, as time goes on. I have seen a couple of studies looking at changing the optic zone size of, of orthokeratology contact lenses and it didn't make a, a meaningful difference in terms of the peripheral refractive error that the patient experiences. Um, we don't have, you know, ultimate um, evidence to know whether or not it might affect myopia progression, but um, you would expect that if it didn't have a meaningful change in terms of the myopic defocus experienced in the peripheral retina, it probably didn't change the myopia progression ultimately. So, you know, I think we're finding out more and more information. I think that's one of those areas where people should be continuing to educate themselves and see as science evolves right, right now. I agree. Um, standard treatment is probably what we can do. 
Um, the one thing that we do know now is from our Blink study is that the higher ad power is more important. Yeah, that, well, that's interesting because that would be contrary to my experience is that, you know, because I, I wouldn't have necessarily been able to, to place the exact same, what is it, plus three that you were using? Plus uh, 250, plus yeah. yeah plus, mm -hmm. So plus 250. Um, I, I wouldn't have been likely on every single case on a, on an orthokeratology patient been putting, you know, the exact same ad power, right. All across the, all across right. that peripheral defocus. So how would you explain that? Yeah. With, with orthokeratology, basically your peripheral defocus is equal to the baseline refractive error. Um, right. So, you know, it may be that orthokeratology works best for those you know, patients who are three to five diopter myopes and soft multifocal contact lenses work better for those one to three diopter myopes. We don't have evidence of that, but that's based on, you know, the development of information based on a series of studies that that ultimately can inform a future research question that somebody needs to really take a look at. Um, and With, so, you know, yeah, right, so I was going to come back to Blake. evidence yeah. that shows that it might work. Do you think, so then is, is peripheral defocus, so that your blink study would suggest perhaps that peripheral defocus, the more the better. Mm -hmm. So it would even get to the point of myopic peripheral defocus would actually be better than exact right on no defocus in the periphery. Is that what that blink study suggests to you? That's what the theory is, and that's what, you know, we've got a couple of papers that we are planning in the not-too-distant future. We've collected those data, and we will definitely take a look at that. What, you know, what predicts the amount of slowing of refractive error? What predicts the future refractive error progression? Is it myopic defocus? And if it is, is it the, you know, is it the most myopic meridian, or is it the spherical equivalent, um, you know, in the periphery, or... Is it the least aberrated form? We don't. We don't ultimately know what the signal is that the eye is searching for. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do in that area, um, and you know we'll we'll have those answers to some of those questions mm. in, in the future. My my main question I have with that is that um, is it would seem so. There's got to be some other signal, or the peripheral retina has a different ability to sense directional blur than the central macula would have, or it would respond to it differently. That's weird to me. Is that weird to you? Uh, no, and it's not necessarily that it's only the peripheral retina that controls eye growth. I think what the studies have shown is that we thought all eye growth was controlled by the macula or by the fovea. Right. But we now know that peripheral retina also plays a role. And we don't know the relative weight of the role it plays, but we know there's a lot more of it. So um, I think, you know, the entire retina actually plays a role in eye growth. Um, and we, what we can do, though, with the treatments that we have today is we can provide the myopic stimulus or the, the myopic defocus in the periphery, which doesn't affect vision. And so that's where we're applying it primarily. But, you know, ultimately, we're using multifocal contact lenses that adults use for presbyopia. So you know that myopic defocus is also has to be also has to be in the phobia. And so, yeah. you know, it's... Yeah, that's so weird, especially because um, we have that study that showed us that you had, you know, if, if you undercorrected patients, they were actually going to accelerate, you know, they're, they're going to be more rapidly progressive. Yeah. And so, I mean, that that's crazy to me because we were actually trained to undercorrect patients if, if we, like, as one of the 
potential options. Right. And I know that when I speak across the country, there's still probably 20 to 30% of docs that are still doing that. Um, and so that, that would signify to me that, that there is this, that there's something else going on. If it's the case that myopic defocus in the periphery helps slow more than, than exact focus in the periphery, then myopic defocus in the fovea actually accelerates uh, axial elongation, then there's got to be something else at play, right? Or yeah, not necessarily. Um, so the studies that undercorrect patients, undercorrect patients by about a half diopter. Right. And we know that the hyperopic defocus that myopic patients um, experience with just single vision glasses or contact lenses is a little over a half diopter. So by undercorrecting, we're just bringing that peripheral defocus basically hmm. onto the retina. Now, I don't okay. know why it would maybe, and some studies find it increases, some studies find no difference. Um, so I understand why it wouldn't decrease myopia progression. I don't understand why it would increase myopia progression. Right. But I think it's probably related to simply the amount of myopic defocus that pa patients are experiencing. If we could undercorrect them by a diopter by two and a half diopters like we did in the blink oh, study, I see what you're saying. but give them clear vision, it might still slow eye growth. Right. Interesting. So we, you know, then we give them blurry vision and that's, that's not yeah. what we want to treat our patients. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. We were really in the weeds there for a second. I, I just think it's very interesting because these are unanswered yeah. questions and I can't wait for the studies that you're talking about to come out so we can answer some of them. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I, um, Jeff, I'll be respectful of your time. I know we, I, I told you we'd keep it under an hour and, and this is a ton of fun for me. And I learned, I learned a lot and I was, it was fun to kind of work through this with you. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, not a problem. Um, I, you know, my opiate control is my passion. I think it's really important for optometrists to learn as much as they possibly can about it. And so I'm more than willing to you know, talk to people about it um, on a daily basis. So thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. I know, I know you're a busy guy, so I may reach out to you again and, and have you back on for, for more follow-up.
Thank you.